mass hysteria, collective delusions, or just people freaking out. No matter what you want to call it, you can't deny that sometimes large numbers of people just seem to lose it. These sorts of mass hysteria outbreaks are actually far more common than you would think. And yes, they continue into the 21st century. We're going to look at some examples from history today. We are not going to look at the Salem Witch Trials, which requires its own episode. It's so much. And we're not going to talk about Spring-Heeled Jack of the 19th century either. But we will, along the way, hear about nuns that bite and meow like cats, school children who faint, people who can't stop dancing, people who are convinced that someone is out to get all of us, mysterious attacks on windshields, and even an epidemic of freaky clown sightings that swept the world in 2016. Welcome to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, The World is Weird. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. So hysteria, the term hysteria, it's actually kind of a crap term. It technically means a state of high, uncontrollable emotion. And as far back as 1900 BCE, it was thought to be mainly a female problem. That's where the name comes from. The Greek word hystera means uterus, like you get a hysterectomy. I guess it was figured that men don't freak out or have delusions, only women. The modern usage, actually, it comes from an 1896 paper by Sigmund Freud, who, as we know, had a lot of interesting ideas from examining neurotic, middle-class Viennese housewives. He knows that some of them had physical symptoms from childhood traumas that persisted into adulthood, or so he thought, which he dubbed hysteria. Then, in 1905, he changed his theory and decided that actually, even though the women thought they had been victims of sexual abuse, what they were actually remembering was repressed childhood fantasies, because he started to get the idea that children are in fact sexual beings, though they don't act upon it, but that the urges are still there. He then eventually scrapped that theory as well and started using the word hysteria to apply not just to women, but to men as well. He even used it to describe some of his own neuroses. But until the 20th century, it was really thought by the authorities in charge, who were, of course, by and large men, that this was a woman problem. So no surprise that some of the earlier examples of mass hysteria we find in the history books come from convents. Nonsense. The biting nuns. 
Somewhere in the 1400s, the exact date is unknown, but this account comes from a 1784 German book called About the Loneliness by Johann Silvermann. He sounds like he was a blast. So apparently, a nun in a convent somewhere in Germany suddenly started biting people around her. And then, some of the other nuns in the convent started biting people. And quite hard. Before you knew it, it had spread to other convents. Eventually spreading throughout Germany, or what we would call Germany today, as well as Holland, parts of France, and even as far as convents in Rome, Italy. Nobody knew why they were doing it. People prayed at them. They performed masses for them. When that didn't work, priests started performing exorcisms. And finally, they brought in soldiers and said, we will flog anyone who bites or dunk them in freezing cold water, at which point the bitings stopped. So apparently, the threat of extreme physical violence did the trick. Cat, cat, Yes, you heard me, cat. This is another Middle Ages story, and again, we don't know the exact dates, but the account comes from a medical textbook called Epidemics of the Middle Ages by J.F. Hecker, published in 1844. So, much like the biting thing, one day, some nun, somewhere, started meowing like a cat. And then other nuns started meowing like cats. Sometimes they would meow, sometimes they would howl, sometimes they would scratch. They were even known to chase mice. It all sort of started sinking up. Eventually, the nuns in the convent, instead of just randomly doing their cat thing, would all come together every day at the same time and meow. And then they would stop and go back to their business. It started getting on everybody's nerves, especially the mother superior. So finally, again, like the biters, soldiers threatened that they would all get whipped unless they stopped. And so they stopped. This one especially freaked out the general populace because it was widely believed at the time that animals could possess human beings, especially cats. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of stories about mass hysteria, outbreaks in convents. Uh, For example, in the city of Würzburg, again in Germany in 1749, nuns started screaming and convulsing and going into catatonic trances. Nobody knew what to do. Again, like with the cats, maybe being able to possess people, the authorities started to look around for an outside source. What a surprise. They found somebody in town who they declared a witch. They tortured her, got her to confess, burned her alive, and then the nuns stopped behaving like this. Possibly the most famous of all of these is the story of the Devils, the Devils of Lodon. In 1634, all the nuns at an Ursuline convent in the French city of Lodon began acting odd. They started convulsing, were shaking, screaming, speaking in tongues, tearing off their clothes. The parish priest, Urbain Grandier, was known for rather liberally interpreting the rules governing a priest's life. It was rumored that he had multiple lovers, including some of the younger, more comely nuns, and that he'd even fathered children with some of them. This went on for quite a while, the nuns behaving like this. And it certainly didn't make his life any easier because he was under an enormous amount of pressure from Cardinal Richelieu to take down the city walls of Loden. Richelieu was in the process of getting all towns and cities to take down their walls. Loden was one of the last places to do this. So finally, the nuns started pointing the finger at Father Grandier, saying he was the leader of a satanic cult, that he made them have sex with the devil, and so on and so on and so forth. Well, once word gets out about something like that, guess who comes in? The Inquisition! So the Inquisition comes in, they listen to the nun's testimony, it seems plausible to them, they torture him, they find him guilty, and they burn him alive. He was actually, because he was such an important person, they were supposed to strangle him first, but the flames caught too quickly, and so he actually literally burned alive. And 
Richelieu got his wish, the city walls got taken down. There's an account of this in a novel by Aldous Huxley called The Devils of Loden, which was later made into a very good film by Ken Russell called The Devils. And in both of these, it suggested that perhaps it all started because the prioress of the convent was jealous. Father Grandier was having his way with a bunch of the ladies. She was in love with him, but she was a hunchback, and he was not interested in her that way. Why all this nonsense? Modern researchers often think it's a psychological disorder that's sort of born of the oppression of the individualized personality by the convent. The convent is all about conformity and things like this. Others have suggested that perhaps what happens is you get people who have multiple personality disorder in the convent, sometimes quite a few of them, and they just sort of feed off of each other. Other people have suggested that in the case of Loden, it was started off as a prank by some of the younger nuns, and then once the Inquisition got there, uh uh-oh, things got pretty serious, so that everybody kind of had to go along with it. Well, certainly Richelieu got his walls taken down, and all the remaining Protestant people in town quickly converted to Catholicism. So the church certainly came out as the winner in that one. Another place where people are all together and in situations that are potentially stressful or at least are designed to sort of eliminate individuality is school. And there have been numerous, numerous, numerous cases over the years of mass hysterias in schools. School days. D-A-Z-E. Get it? In 1892, in the Swiss city of Grosstinz, 10-year-old girl's hand began trembling in class for no apparent reason. The tremors spread to her entire body. Then, other students started having similar seizures, eventually 19 of them. A short time later, a similar incident afflicted 20 students at a school in nearby Basel. Twelve years later, in 1904, another outbreak occurred, also in Basel, this time afflicting 27 students. It was thought that local legends about the 1892 outbreak were largely responsible for the 1904 one. In 1894, 60 students at a girls' school in Montreal, Canada, also suffered from fits and seizures, sometimes lasting as long as two months before abating. A rather famous case happened in January 1962 in Kashasa, Tanzania, at a boarding school on the shores there of Lake Victoria. Three girls started laughing during class. You know, they got the giggles, and they just couldn't stop. And then they couldn't stop, and they couldn't stop. And, you know, I think we all know that laughter is infectious. And soon, other students started to laugh. And they didn't stop. And then more students, and more, and more, and more. And eventually, 95 students were afflicted with uncontrollable laughter that went on and on and on and on. Some of them laughed for hours and then just stopped as suddenly as they'd started. But some went on for days and days, including a few that went on for 16 days in a row, continuously laughing, unable to eat, unable to sleep. The school was closed, needless to say. It's kind of hard to teach in that kind of an environment. But the laughing plague soon spread to other schools. 14 local schools in the area had to be shut down. The laughing plague then jumped to a nearby village where another 217 people were afflicted. It spread from there, and eventually, thousands of people would be reported to have been afflicted by this weird combination of sort of uncontrollable laughing, crying, restless wandering, and even the occasional violent outburst. 
In the schools, it was only school children, not teachers and staff, who seemed to be afflicted. And so it was chalked up by the authorities to mass hysteria due to pressure placed upon the students to succeed, combined with a general feeling of uncertainty because the country had just gained its independence from the UK only one month previously. That same year, 1962, in the town of Welch, Louisiana, 21 female students and one boy, all between the ages of 12 and 17, started having body tremors and fits of shaking over a six-month period. This all started when rumors of mandatory pregnancy tests circulated. The school administration was really cracking down on the student's sexual activity. So that would seem to lend some credence to the idea that in times of extreme stress, this becomes a kind of an escape or an outlet. In 1964, girls at a school in Blackburn, England, began to say that they felt dizzy and started fainting. 85 of them had to be taken to the hospital. Researchers noted that younger girls seemed to get it quicker, but older girls seemed to have symptoms last longer. School officials administered the ISYNC personality inventory and found that almost all the girls suffering from this fainting sickness scored high in both neuroticism and extroversion. So this finding, plus the fact that there had been a polio epidemic not long before, was what made the authorities chalk it up to mass hysteria. It's also worth noting that the day that it started, the students had been in a parade in the sun for three hours, which started the fainting, and then it spread from there. So the official classification was, it was a, quote, hysterical epidemic. At William Byrd High School in Vinton, Virginia in 2003, a twitching outbreak occurred. This all started when one student complained of dizziness and started shaking. Symptoms spread. More students started to complain of it. And by the end of the week, there were 300 students all claiming the same problems. No cause could be found. So again, it was chalked up to mass hysteria. William Byrd High School is in Roanoke County, though. So make of that what you will, conspiracy people. In 2006, students at a school in Portugal developed mysterious rashes and a kind of a weak feeling. Authorities noted that a very popular teen soap opera called Strawberries with Sugar had recently had an outbreak of a disease on the show that spread through the school and that the students at the school in Portugal were exactly describing the symptoms of the mysterious illness on the television program. Because of this, it is known as the Strawberries with Sugar outbreak. I mean, again... The list goes on and on and on and on. There were seizures afflicting cheerleaders and cheerleaders only, or former cheerleaders in North Carolina in 2002. In 2006 and 2007, 500 school children in Mexico City started having seizures and it spread to the nearby neighborhood. A girls' school in Afghanistan started reporting mysterious seizures and tremors in 2009, and apparently this is still going on among the student body. Schools in Brunei, Nepal, Sri Lanka. As recently as August 2019, a school in Malaysia reported the students were afflicted with sudden outbursts of high-pitched screaming. There's a thing called conversion disorder. This is when a psychological trigger of some sort presents as physical symptoms. Probably the most famous of these is hysterical blindness, but there's also hysterical numbness, fits, even partial or even total 
paralysis. Conversion disorder is a real thing, but it's very hard to tell the difference between someone who's suffering from it and someone who's just faking it. And of course, non-medical professionals are usually very likely to assume that it's nonsense and act accordingly, which does not help the people who are in the throes of conversion disorder and cannot help themselves. And there's sometimes an epidemic dimension to this. Even professional psychologists report that sometimes they feel physical sensations similar to what their patients describe. This is something known as body-centered countertransference or somatic countertransference. And they think it might come from a strong emotional identification with the sufferer, a kind of a hyper-empathy. Social psychologists call this hysterical contagion, where strong social and psychological causes manifest as physical symptoms in large groups of people. Often it spreads through word of mouth. So basically you hear about it and then you get it. Back in the 1970s, it was thought that the physical manifestations came about because of a subconscious desire to sort of reap the benefits or perceived benefits of being a sick person. Attention, care, a break from expected work, right? You're told to just relax and take it easy. Uh, One of the most famous cases of this happened in 1962. And it's known as the June bug scare. Workers in a dressmaking section of a textile plant began exhibiting dizziness, numbness, nausea, even vomiting sometimes. And a rumor spread that there was an oddly nasty June bug going around and that this is what happened if it bit you. June bugs are a kind of a beetle that's related to scarabs. 62 employees eventually fell ill. There were numerous reports of seeing the bugs and of being bitten, though almost no victims had anything that even remotely looked like a bite. The authorities noticed that of the 62 afflicted, 59 of them all worked on the same shift and all but one of them worked in the same area of the factory floor. There was no physical evidence of these bugs found at all, and so it was chalked up to mass hysteria, which was then made worse because the media started writing headline stories about it. It's possible in situations like this, there's at least a little bit of what the French call folie à deux, or madness for two. This is when two people are in some kind of close proximity, often very socially isolated, and one of them sort of infects the other one with their delusions. There are variants of this. There's madness for two, there's madness for three, there's known as family madness, and there's even the several madness in which many people can all suffer from the same misconceptions and delusions. There's even folie impose, where a dominant personality inadvertently imposes a delusional belief on others. For example, the head girl in a school class or even a teacher or the mother superior of a convent. And there's also another one called simultaneous madness in which two or more people develop the same delusion independently, but then when they come into contact with each other and share what's happening, they reinforce each other's delusions and even end up spreading them to others. Some studies show this can occur in environments with a lot of unresolved stress. Other studies suggest there could be a genetic predisposition in some people to either being infected by strong delusions or somehow imposing their delusions upon others. Keep in mind, this is not all just in the mind. There are physiological repercussions of this stuff. When these sorts of conditions set in, the adrenal gland gets activated. This releases stress hormones into the body, which increases dopamine. So a person gets stressed out. For a short while, they feel stronger and more focused. Then they get the dopamine hit, so they feel really good. 
and this creates sort of a self-satisfying feedback loop. But remember, the dopamine is released because of stress chemicals, and the body cannot maintain those levels of those chemicals for very long without there being some kind of problem. This can lead to long-term effects like increased rates in blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, immune system problems, obesity, clinical depression, clinical anxiety, and much, much more. You might think, if you've got all this adrenaline going through your system, maybe you just need to get it out. But sometimes that doesn't help either. The Dancing, Dancing Plague, Plague of 1518. So in July 1518, in the now French city of Strasbourg, it's French now, it was the region was just known as Alsace at the time. It's that weird area that's it's Germany, it's France, it's Germany, it's France, it's Germany, it's France. So there's already kind of a, a bit of a stressful situation there. But anyway, in July 1518, a Mrs. Trophia suddenly walked out of her home and started dancing in the street, energetically, by herself, with no music. She did this for a while and then went back in. The next day, she did it again. And the next day, and the next day, people started joining her, also dancing by themselves. By the seventh day, there were 34 people dancing out there. Authorities at the time attributed it to hot blood. This idea that they their blood had literally heated up and they needed to dance in order to get rid of all that extra heat. That's some good medical thinking right there. So, the city hired musicians to play music for them at faster and faster tempos in an effort to help people shed all that heat their hot blood was making for them. This, of course, had the effect of getting more people in on it, some of whom probably really just like to dance. By the end of the month, there were more than 400 people dancing. They had to move all the stalls out of a marketplace. They had to open up a bunch of public buildings. Most of the people dancing were young women. And keep in mind, that may sound quite lovely, but this is continuous dancing. This is the shoot horses, don't they kind of dancing. This is no rest, no breaks. And with the music playing, there was almost like a social pressure to keep going. So by the end of the month, when you've got 400 people going, it's a constant marathon of nonstop dancing. 15 people died due to a, either exhaustion, heart stroke, or heart attack. There's some sources say 15 people a day were dying, but I think that's pretty unlikely because that would mean in two weeks, 210 people died, and that's like half, so I don't think so. What the heck caused this? Obviously, it wasn't hot blood. Well, for a long time, the culprit was thought to be ergot. Ergot gets a lot of blame. Ergot is a fungus that grows on wet rye bread, and it has been blamed for a number of mass hysteria incidents over the years. It's been pointed at as the cause of whatever the heck happened on the Mary Celeste, and even possibly the disappearance of the colony in Roanoke, Virginia. But a whole month of behavior due to temporary poisoning from a hallucinogenic fungus? Not likely. Others thought perhaps it's something called stress-induced psychosis. This can happen when people are suffering from malnutrition or even starvation. Remember Alsace, Germany, France, Germany, France. They've been having a hard time by the time uh, 1518 rolled around. And uh, these hysterias have been known to spread rapidly through a population. Keep in mind, there have been other dancing plagues. There was one in Aachen, Germany back in 1375 in which thousands of people took to the streets dancing, 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 dancing. And this went on for months and months and months. Hundreds of people died. Now, it's possible that they weren't actually dancing. They weren't waltzing. There are psychogenic diseases that cause people to start twitching in sort of wild and random ways, which might be mistaken for dancing, to onlookers. 
but it's really more like a fit. This is sometimes known as the Coria or St. Vitus dance, and the earliest recorded incident of that's way back in the 7th century. Uh, there's a weird tale from 1237 of a large crowd of children started jumping around and they danced all the way from the German town of Erfurt to the town of Arnstadt, which was 12 miles away. And then the next year, 200 people suddenly, for no reason, began to spontaneously dance or twitch or whatever on a bridge in Belgium over the Musa River, which caused the bridge to collapse and a bunch of people got injured and died. Uh, cities in Germany, France, Flanders, Holland, all through the Middle Ages reported dancing plagues. In 1428, a monk in Schaffhausen, Switzerland, danced himself literally to death and later that same year, a large group of women danced frenziedly in the streets of Zurich, causing multiple injuries to themselves and people who tried to stop them. And then suddenly, this goes on until about the middle of the 17th century, and then reports suddenly kind of die out. What was the cause? Again, who knows? Probably not ergot poisoning, but maybe some people thought bouts of typhus or encephalitis, or maybe it was even a type of temporary epilepsy. Some people think that many participants were faking. Some people were actually suffering from some kind of psychogenic disease, and others thought this was a great way to get attention or blow off steam or avoid work. One thing's for sure, when you get large numbers of people involved, things can go south very quickly. Crowd, Crowd control. control. Uh, there's an old joke that a mob is half as intelligent as its stupidest member. Here are a couple of stories that kind of show the truth in that. The Milan, Milan poisoning, poisoning scare. scare. So in the early 17th century, so we're talking 1600s, there was a fear that evildoers were planning to spread some kind of plague or poison or maybe use witchcraft all through Christendom. In 1630, the governor of the Italian city of Milan got a letter from King Philip IV of Spain telling him to be on the lookout for four Frenchmen who'd escaped prison in Spain and who'd said, under torture, that they were intent on spreading the Black Plague in Milan. The year previously, an anonymous poem had been published saying that Lucifer was plotting to poison everyone in Milan, so now that poem was starting to look like a prophecy. People began looking at strangers suspiciously, and the atmosphere in the city grew tenser and tenser and tenser, with nerves getting more and more afraid. It was kind of a paranoid utopia. On the night of May 17th, some people reported to the authorities that they'd seen strange people putting poison on a partition in the cathedral. Medical experts were dispatched, but they found nothing. The next morning, all the doors on the main streets had a mysterious sort of splat or daub of something on them. This substance was tested and found to be harmless, so the authorities figured it was like pranksters, like an early internet troll, if you will, capitalizing on the fear that was going through the city. But the rumor mongers had it that this was actually poison, even though it was tested and it wasn't. And accusations started flying. Other people said, no, no, these are identifying marks for people who are working with the devil. Random people on the street started being fingered as potential culprits. An 80-year-old man was seen wiping a pew in a church before sitting on it, and a panic-filled woman accused him of spreading poison on the seat. She grabbed him, began beating him. A mob gathered, and they started dragging him to the magistrates, beating him all the time, and they ended up beating him to death before they could get to the police. A pharmacist named Mora was found with what were called mysterious potions, which just means a non-pharmacist didn't know what they were, and he was actually arrested. 
Under torture, because that's what you did back then, he admitted to being a friend of Satan and he named a bunch of other people as Satanists. Those people were also arrested and tortured and they named more people who were also tortured and fingered more people and around and around and around it went. Dozens and dozens of people were arrested, tortured, and eventually executed for being in league with the devil. Even the nobles were not safe from accusations, including Francis Cardinal Richelieu and General Wallenstein, who was supreme commander of the armies of the Holy Roman Empire during the Thirty Years' War. Strangely, some high-placed and noble-born people even came forward to the authorities on their own, confessing to a number of bizarre crimes, ranging from poisoning people, to strangling babies, to being in league with the devil. Keep in mind, this is not just one or two people. This is lots of people. They were also tortured and executed. Why all the confessions? First, you'll say anything under torture. But what about the volunteers? What was going on there? Were they crazy? Were they attention-seeking, even though the attention that they got wasn't particularly nice attention? Were they delusional from illnesses that were common at the time? You know, like they're hungry or they've got, I don't know, the grip or whatever. And then this weeks and weeks of mounting paranoia and fear kind of infected them. Police will always tell you whenever there's like a potential serial killer on the loose or what have you, they get a lot of people falsely confessing. And when people are freaked out, pointing the finger at large groups of others is all too commonplace. The Irish, the Irish fright. 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 So in England and parts of Wales in 1688, uh, this happened in the middle of what's known as the Glorious Revolution, which is when William III of Orange and his wife Mary II replaced her father James on the throne of England. James was Catholic, Mary and William were Protestants, and this kind of cemented Protestantism in the country. This is all sort of in the middle of happening. People start reporting that roving bands of Irish soldiers are killing whole towns in England and burning their fields in revenge for removing James from the throne. People start panicking, and in 19 counties, almost 100,000 people begin building barricades and arming themselves, ready to fend off the evil invading Irish. Reports start coming in on December 13th that the town of Uxbridge, which is west of London, had been totally sacked. The next day, that same rumor travels 120 miles to Norfolk, which is well northeast of London, and then another 140 miles further south to Kent, which is southeast of London. The rumor at that point has now morphed into saying that the Irish horde is heading to destroy Cambridge. Keep in mind these distances, 120 miles in a day, then another 140 miles in a day. There are no telephones. How are these rumors flying? After two days of this, the rumors have gone all the way to the West Country and Yorkshire. By the 18th, just five days after they start, the rumors are in southern Wales. The Welsh have added the bonus information that it's the Irish and Scottish. The rumors were almost always the same. The Irish, and maybe also the Scottish, are killing everyone in some town that's like 40 to 60 miles away. So like 40 miles back then is like a one or two day journey. And are heading here very soon, or heading somewhere very important, usually. Of course, none of this is true. Some think it was the result of years of anti-Catholic propaganda by the Whig Party, which said that Irish were all borderline savages who hated the English and were just waiting for their chance to kill all the English people. Some said it was actually started by the Orangists, who wanted to spread the idea of how evil and bloodthirsty Catholics are. Specifically, William III's general may have started that disinformation campaign. 
Others thought maybe it was started by disbanded troops who had no money and were not particularly well treated by folk. And so sometimes they would have to break into a storehouse to get food so they wouldn't starve to death. And that reports about this somehow morphed into, oh my God, the Irish and maybe the Scottish are coming. Right at the beginning of the French Revolution in 1789, a very similar thing happened known as the Great Fear, except instead of Irish, it was angry mobs of peasants are coming to get everybody who has any money. Shaking, screaming, biting, meowing, fears of the Irish. Mass hysteria incidents are not only so strange or frightening, sometimes they're just odd. The Seattle Seattle windshield pitting pitting epidemic. epidemic. This all happened in April 1954. In a suburb of Seattle named Bellingham, people began noticing strange holes and pits in their windshields. They started reporting these to the police. The news got a hold of all of this and started reporting about it in the newspapers and on the nightly news. So then other people started to notice, hey, you know what? I've also got strange little holes in my windshield. Now, police at first thought it was kids using BB guns, but then reports started coming in from the nearby town of Cedro Woolley, which is 26 miles away, and Mount Vernon, which is 30 miles away, and then other towns, and eventually coming from a town on Fidalgo Island, 40 miles away. So there's no way that it's a group of kids with BB guns. The news reported more and more on what was known as the pitting epidemic, and soon the police were flooded with calls of victims. People would even stop police cars that were passing by so that they could report that they had noticed strange holes in their windshields. By the middle of the month, almost 3,000 windshield pitting reports had come in. The mayor asked for help from the state governor and finally asked for help from President Eisenhower himself. Various theories made the rounds, including it's vandals, it's sand fleas, somehow causing the glass to bubble, it's a new radio transmitter at the Jim Creek Naval Radio Station that's making waves that causes the glass to oscillate, or it's cosmic rays from outer space. The Seattle Crime Lab looked into it and came to the conclusion that it was, quote, 5% hoodlumism and 95% public hysteria. They published this report in the local newspapers, and two days later on the 17th, reports of pitting suddenly stopped. This is now considered one of the classic cases of collective delusion. The fact is, windshields always had small pits at them, at least back then, before they were all made of safety glass. And it's just that people hadn't noticed them before until something had drawn their attention to it. Collective delusion is not the same thing as mass hysteria. A delusion is a firm belief based on insufficient information that is nonetheless unshakable, regardless of what evidence is presented. And in the case of the Seattle windshield pitting incident, people who thought it was vandals, no matter what you said, they thought it was vandals. People who thought it was the new naval radio transmitter thought it was that, and nothing you said could change their minds. Hysteria, as mentioned before, is an uncontrollable or emotion or excitement. So you can kind of think of hysteria as a right brain emotional problem and delusion is kind of a left brain logical one. Delusions, incidentally, usually last longer also. The Hollingwell Incident. One of the most famous incidents of this type occurred in 1980 at the Hollingwell Showground in the English market town of Kirkby in Ashfield, which is in Nottinghamshire. On July 13, 1980, the annual Hollingwell Show was taking place. Marching bands from 11 schools from as far away as 40 miles came here to perform, about 500 children in total. 
Performances start at 9 in the morning, so keep in mind, many of the children were tired as well as pretty nervous about performing in front of a crowd, but it all started off well enough. And then an hour and a half in, about 10.30, some of the performers started collapsing, first one and then another, like nine pins or bowling pins, according to one onlooker. Children started complaining of sore eyes, dizziness, headaches, and some even started vomiting. One girl said she felt like she had no bones in her arms and legs. Soon the symptoms began to spread to the adults in the crowd, and finally, even to babies that were being held by their parents. Babies. About 300 people overall were affected, 259 of whom had to be taken to the hospital. What could have caused it? Contaminated water, some people thought. Radio waves, said others. Radio waves have been the culprit in a lot of people's minds for a long time. Food poisoning, other people said. The one the press ran with was pesticides, specifically the fungicide Tritomorph, which would eventually get banned by the British government in the year 2000. The official inquiry went on for 20 years, and the conclusion they eventually reached was that it was a case of mass hysteria kicked off by overtired and anxious children and then spreading through a kind of empathy to adults and from the adults to babies. Interestingly enough, there were also reports that several horses fell ill, but uh, there'd be no explanation for that one. And the last case we're going to look at, and one of my favorites, the 2016 Clown Sighting. So, starting in August 2016, people started reporting seeing strange, menacing clowns at odd locations, like hanging around schools or in the middle of a forest. By October, this had happened in all 50 U.S. states and nine of Canada's 13 provinces and territories. It all started off in Green Bay, Wisconsin, when pictures of a scary clown wandering around a parking lot under a bridge were leaked onto the internet on August 1st. A few days later, a Facebook page appeared simply titled GAGS, capital G, and the pictures were posted there. No explanation. Mysterious. News outlets, notably The Young Turks and Fox, started reporting about it. Now, it all turned out this was a guerrilla marketing ploy by a Wisconsin filmmaker for his horror film, Gags, which was due out in September. Mystery solved, right? Wrong. 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 Because similar sightings of creepy clowns started being reported all over the U.S. Apparently, in at least some of the cases, people really were dressing up as creepy clowns and skulking around as a kind of a prank. Weird clowns also started popping up all over Canada and in other countries as far away as Australia where circuses and the party clown trade were seeing drastic declines in numbers. It's kind of creepy. It's a little bit funny, except that not all the incidents were harmless or without consequences. A clown attacked two girls in Adelaide, Australia, trying to steal their ice cream cones and also one girl's phone. Similar tales after that got reported started cropping up in all major Australian cities. In South Carolina, a nine-year-old boy said a clown tried to lure him into some nearby woods, causing an anti-clown panic. A group of 10 clowns in Finland jumped out of a van and started chasing children, herding three of them to an underpass where there was another clown holding a chainsaw. Now, in October, in the days leading up to Halloween, reports from all over drastically increased. In New Zealand, costume shops hid their clown outfits in the back after reports of people dressing as clowns scaring school children came out. In the U.S., Target took all their clown paraphernalia off the shelves, and even Ronald McDonald took a break. 
in Ohio, a school district banned all clown outfits and clown masks. And in Britain, all the actors at the Thorpe Park theme park, which is a huge theme park there, were told that if your job is to go around the park as a clown, dress as something else. Many times people in charge thought it was no laughing matter. Police in Fiji warned locals not to get involved in this clown thing or there would be serious consequences. Incidents in Brazil led to a mass protest by professional clowns who did not appreciate the pranksters besmirching their good and happy name. Randy Christensen, then president of the World Clown Association, took umbrage with the pranksters as well. In the UK, the Russian embassy actually took the time to issue an advisory warning about British clowns, though some people thought this was just a roundabout way to insult Boris Johnson and distract from Russian antics in Syria. Many people reacted with fear and concern. Other people were more active in their dislike of the clown phenomenon. A clown standing in the road was almost run over in Denmark. Turned out the clown was a 13-year-old boy who thought it was funny. A couple of days later, also in Denmark, a man punched a clown in the face that had been following him around. Two clowns jumped out at a jogger in Finland who had his dog with him. The dog bit one of them and the man punched another one, but the two clowns managed to run off and escape. In Berlin, a 16-year-old dressed as a clown scared a 14-year-old and the 14-year-old stabbed the clown. A clown in Sweden stabbed a 19-year-old boy in the shoulder. A clown punched a man in the stomach in Zurich, Switzerland. A clown attacked a man in Rostock, Germany with a baseball bat, leaving him with some very serious bruises. And on and on it went. While most of the sightings were just scary, some of them did in fact end in violence, either from or against the clowns in question. So was this really just an internet promotion that went viral, so to speak, on the internet with people jumping in for a number of reasons because they thought it was funny, because they had to, they wanted to blow off steam, etc.? Maybe. Of course, one of the reasons it spread, almost certainly, is because it was reported by news agencies and on news outlets around the world. Perhaps in an effort to distract from their own culpability, some news agencies started dismissing the whole thing as mass hysteria exacerbated by a fear of clowns, which is a real thing. It's called chorophobia. Almost 8% of Americans are thought to suffer from it. What are the causes? Could be scary movies and other entertainments. Cultural critic Mark Derry wrote an essay called Cotton Candy Autopsy, Deconstructing Psycho Killer Clowns, and he noted that there's been a rise lately of this sort of modern or postmodern archetype of the scary evil killer clown, and maybe this is causing an increase in chorophobia. Maybe it's kind of an innocence gone wrong trope, or maybe it's real deep true evil pretending to be innocent. Some cultural commentators have noticed that modern clown images resemble ancient depictions of demons and other evil creatures, so maybe there's like a union collective unconsciousness thing going on. Maybe it's a traumatic experience with clowns. When you're a kid, right, they're big, their faces are hard to read, and they may have inadvertently caused you a mode of embarrassment or shock as a kid. Clowns often behave in behavior that initially seems transgressive or against what is thought to be right. Like, hey, look at my flower. Isn't it nice? Oh, it squirted with you with water. <laughs> it could also be a learned phobia, which is when someone you know claims to be afraid of clowns, so you then also, quote, become afraid of them in an effort to merge your narratives and be closer to that person, especially if that person is an authority figure. As for the 2016 clown panic, who can say if there's just one single cause? Keep in mind, there were numerous reports of Osama bin Laden in the U.S. between 2001 and 2008, and Elvis
Elvis Presley is spotted hundreds of times every year despite the fact that he died in 1977. One thing is for sure, anyone who actually did dress up like a clown and scare people was not an actual professional clown who are there to cause joy. Now, all of this should start sounding pretty familiar to modern people. So, of course, I think we have to ask ourselves, is conspiracy thinking a form of slow, long-term shared delusion? Maybe. Mass hysteria, shared and collective delusions, and conspiracy thinking do seem to have a lot in common. But that will be another episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Thank you for visiting the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.